It's May the 27th, this is Particularly Baptist, the podcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church of Sacramento. I'm Robert Briggs, one of the pastors, and I have my co-pastor Steve with me this afternoon. How you doing, Steve? Good, brother. It's good to be with you. We're hanging in there? We're hanging in there. We are uh, uh, hanging on for the seemingly daily changes to how things are going. Yeah, and the Lord has sent us 105, 108 degrees just to enjoy that, that too. <laughs> the heat and to start to boil things up for the what could be a long, hot summer in Sacramento <laughs> in more ways than one. But uh, we've had an interesting, I guess, weekend, uh, beginning of the week, as we've been really waiting on our governor to give us some help and direction to reassemble. Uh, I think your friend Chris Hutchison gave me that phrase. He said, uh, it was strange better for, than reopening, and I like it, reassemble. It is a strange when a Presbyterian uh, corrects the language of Baptist, yeah. uh, but we'll take it. It was good. I, I thought, I'm borrowing that one. I'm taking it for free. Uh, and here we are. We're sitting today now, having had the guidelines from our governor uh, given to us, and also our county, which came out last night. And we have spent the last probably 18 hours thinking through how we will reassemble as the people of God here at uh, Emmanuel Baptist. And I think the bigger picture that we want to talk about today in this particular podcast is just the managing of uh, the relationship with the civil magistrate and how as the church we're trying to navigate that here in California. We know that many people are watching California, the church and state issue, our governor's uh, position, how we relate. Um, We're very thankful, I think, as Reformed Baptists that we have a history where our confessionalism helps us with our chapter on the, the civil magistrate and yep. our our connections right back into the Westminster Assembly and the debates that took place when the divine right of kings was on the table. Um, and now we're, we're seeing how important a confessional document and standard is historically for the church. Right, right. And it really uh, brings the twofold nature and of wisdom and wisdom of subscribing to historic confession the first is just simply that we are not dependent upon our understanding of this passage or that passage but we're looking in total at what is uh, as our confession says in chapter one necessarily contained in scripture and how christians have thought through that and so uh, oftentimes what's going on now in our discourse about our relationship to the state is romans 13 which of course is a pivotal text but it's not the only text when we think about understanding the role and function of the government under God. And so our confession takes that into account, and Christians have for centuries done that. And they also, you see the wisdom of subscribing to a historic confession that has not l- locked us into any particular uh, space and time in history. I've reflected on statements of faith that maybe have been written in the last 30 or 40 years when there's been next to no controversy on these matters. Many of them have absolutely zero mention of the role of the civil magistrate, the relationship between the state and the church, and that's because it, it, wasn't, it wasn't necessary when the time of that statement was written. And so having a, a statement that goes back in history and that considers the place of the church over the centuries I think becomes really vital for us as we're now drawing from the wisdom of those before us. It doesn't answer every question. doesn't mean we don't need to exercise wisdom, but it does give us a starting point versus us just rushing to our Bibles and going, oh no, what does the Bible say about the government? Right. Yeah, I think that that's been an interesting uh, exercise for me. Obviously, you know, anybody listening knows I'm not an American by birth. Um, and 
but I am an American citizen now and having sworn, you know, uh, to be faithful to the Constitution of America, I've been thrown into this three months of civics, theology, historical reality. How does it all work? Yeah. Uh, you know, and you know, you've been walking beside me. I'm learning as I go in a lot of ways, and I'm, I'm I'm very thankful for that. And you know, obviously, you've been a great help in even thinking through a lot of those things. And even, you know, some of the guys in our church have been very helpful who know these things better than than, than I do and, and we do. I think what's been interesting for me is to see at one level just how the, the, the there is this biblicist approach by certain evangelical, even men who claim they're reformed Christians, uh, rather than a real understanding of the history of the church, the conflict between church and state, the, the hammering out of our confessional position, what does the Bible teach about the civil magistrate and the church and the jurisdictions, um, and then how does it apply in a constitutional republic like the United States of America. Right. And uh, it's, it's been quite illuminating to me to see that actually there's a, a remarkable amount of ignorance, it seems, regarding church history, regarding historical theology, regarding the whole ecclesiology, uh, you know, state civil magistrate issue. Um, and as I'm working through some of this th stuff, I'm thinking, wow, I'm so glad that we have a historical grounding that we can turn to, I mean, to your point, it doesn't address every detail, but it gives us substance theologically right, right. Uh, to work it through. And then we need the Holy Spirit, of course, in our own generation, and we need the help of God to navigate the peculiarities of our situation, which are, you know, unique for us. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, God in his providence and his wisdom, that's what he's calling us to, because as we've talked, this whole issue of rights and what our rights are and how we exercise our rights, you know, whether they be religious rights or whether they be the whole issue of you know, the, the debate we have with gay rights or other rights, how we respond now will set precedence for how we go forward and what is a battle that is it's heating up now Yes, for us. There's no doubt about that as Without a Christian question. church. And, 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 yeah. and comforts and privileges and blessings that American Christians have had in the past are fast eroding. Um, and we need to have our feet firmly planted on rock uh, that when the waves come and crash in, we are able to stand and, and, and rebut these things and take a stand for righteousness that's not rooted just in one or two isolated texts in the Bible that are not really well exegeted and thought through in the whole counsel of God, but are actually uh, developed in the whole system of truth that the scriptures teach us. Right. And that's, for us, I think one of the things we're seeing right now that concerns us um, that we want to address in love and in grace, but call the church back to a, 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 a biblical, historical, confessional understanding of these great truths uh, that our forefathers had to fight for before us. Right. And I think what you mentioned related to the other battles that for the time being have been somewhat shelved for related to the greater urgency, as it were, of the shutdown in COVID-19, related to so-called same-sex marriage, the folks with gender dysphoria, transgender issues. Now the education homeschooling thing with the Harvard um, a conference has become more, even more pressing. And so I think, I know for me, it's been a growing burden that I'm looking over the horizon and knowing that this is in some ways is a kind of a skirmish and the war is kind of over that hill on those matters. And those are going to have more deep-seated and long-term impact. So how I fight this and how I think through this 
I want to be very careful that I'm standing in a defensible position, a consistent position, knowing that uh, in public discourse and in my engagement with uh, the governing authorities and, and just others in the community, that I'm presenting the consistent biblical ethic that and position that God calls me to, and knowing that I'm already subject to the accusation, unfounded, but the accusation that I'm uh, dis- that our position against homosexuality is discriminatory or that we're, uh, in, in asserting our religious preferences, we're using it as a cover for hate and bigotry, you know, these kind of things that we've heard already. Mm-hmm. We have to be really careful that when we're engaging the issue related to getting our churches to reassemble, reopening our buildings or what have you, that we're not giving any fodder for that. And that down the road, the arguments we make now, we don't want us to come back and haunt us when we're actually doing fighting what I think will be the more long-term battle of the generation, which is over, you know, identity politics and all these other matters. Yeah. And so as we as we reflect, here we are, you know, we, we're, we're drawing up our game plan, Lord willing, a week on Sunday, we hope to open if we can. Uh, we've had to work through our relationship with the civil magistrate. You know, as we, we've joked already, we feel like we know Gavin Newsom because we've listened to the man so much. Um, right. We're now in the place where we've heard from our county. Um, let's talk a little bit about how we have walked through this in terms of relating to the civil magistrate as Christian pastors, not just struggling with our own you know, lack of knowledge, understanding our own you know, disappointments, concerns, but also realising we have a responsibility before the Lord to, re- to lead our people. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a godly fashion, in a, in a, in a God-honoring fashion, recognizing that we you know we have a we have a fairly broad uh, group of Christian people that we love and shepherd, and are not only in exactly the same place regarding politics, but Californians, you know. But the goal is to see Christ formed in them, right. uh, to lead them in the way of Christ, um, recognizing that we'll never please all of the people all the time. But none of us are getting what we want these days anyway. So right. why would we even begin to think about that? Let's. Talk a little bit about that, Steve. You know, we we've we've came close to putting something legally together. We've drawn back from that at this point. Um, what are the foundational issues that have really uh, shaped our thinking with regards to how we're leading at this point? The issue of the church is being discriminated against. Right. We would push back on that. Yeah. At this, where we've been, we've been pushing back on that because we know at a wider level. There's a lot of people suffering a lot worse than we even are. Yeah, yeah, and that, that even goes back to, I think, what I just said about us being careful about how and when we articulate our religious liberties and our constitutional rights, and even how we then go about articulating them. And I think we've tried to be very careful to um, get rid of bad arguments. And we've talked about, I think, before even on the podcast, and I know at other places for our congregation, where um, we, we don't... We don't we're looking for the church to be singled out, and and the church does have, or the, excuse me, the government does have prerogative to prohibit our assembling if it's done in common with other assemblies for greater, you know, rights. And we've talked about, or greater uh, public safety, rather. So we've talked about, you know, if there was an earthquake in Midtown and all the buildings were unsafe and the government said you can't enter your building and it prohibited our meeting, well, we wouldn't see that as uh, inappropriate for the government's role. It is the government's role. I've been to nations where they don't have building codes. You don't want to live there. Um, and so we, we wouldn't argue about that. So then the question then for us becomes, well, how do we then determine, is the government showing apparent malice and discriminatory action towards the church um, in, in, in the way it's creating policy? 
And we haven't yet seen that. What we have seen is antipathy and apathy towards the church. That's been very clear. And, but we have seen many other groups, as you mentioned, that are suffering. Um, and we even, as we look at the guidelines uh, that have been released even this week, not only does the church fall under that, but also political protests fall under that. And there's restrictions on how many people can assemble and, and to peaceably protest according. So our constitutional liberty is not the only liberty being restricted. Now, whether that's wise or foolish or reasonable or not, that's something that you know, we can engage as citizens of this nation. But in terms of us waving the flag of our religious liberties are being violated, we have to really look for that careful line where the government is crossing for um, speaking into our prerogative and our practices and really making what amounts to theological judgments. Right, and that's thrown up for us and one, in some regards one of the great tensions because what we recognise is that the government has uh, taken its responsibilities seriously about the circumstances of our worship, which right. includes our building, um, not that that stops us gathering definitively. We could gather in the park, but it seriously hinders us because we gather in a building. Yeah. Um, but recognizing the the state of emergency, the government has the right to concern for the public health. You know, you know, we've recognized that they do have that authority. We have to get permits to do anything in our building with the county or the city. Yeah, you know, that's right. so that's reality. We, we we've lived that way for X years. Nothing's changed at that level. Uh, the challenge comes for us when then we are no longer actually able to gather to engage in the elements of our worship, which is the essence of our worship, um, for a period of time that becomes protracted. Right. And I think that that's where the battle has come for us. You know, we're coming up 12 weeks. You know, we're coming up to, uh, you know, three months, basically. Um whether we buy all that we've been sold regarding the whole virus or whatever is really secondary because they still have the authority as far as we know. And even if they don't, we have a responsibility to take due process constitutionally as private citizens to address that rather than just, you know, let's all go and march on the Capitol right. and, and wave our flags, which, you know, you can do, but it's not going to make any difference. Right. And you've seen a lot of that, I think, confusion, and we've gotten help in thinking that through. So for us, the concern in the line really was when, I think we've discussed this previously, when the church was sort of lumped in with weekend hobbies. Right. And when the government in the state of California initially in its phases had restaurants and workplaces reopening in the church after that, uh, we looked at that and said, wait a minute, uh, this is a problem here. And we see at that point the state overreaching and now making theological determinations about whether or not the church gathering is essential to our faith. And that's where we go, okay, there's the line. And so we, we did, we um, sought legal counsel, and we secured legal counsel. We also got counsel from a political lobbyist, and to try to actually impact and affect decision makers. And there's really, you know, two courses of action you could go. You can get out on the streets, you can protest. You might create a movement, but you also might end up just creating a lot of white noise that decision makers are ignoring. Now, we weren't interested in that. And we did want to get our church reassembled, and we want to talk to the people making those decisions to help deal with whatever antipathy or, or apathy they had towards us. And so we were in that process, actually, and um, I wrote, you know, a brilliant uh, petition that is never going to be read by anybody. Unless you put it on the blog. We'll get it, we'll get it on the blog for people, because I think it's well worth reading. I thought it was excellent. Um, but our, our president trumped us. Trump trumped us. <laughs> And we were really excited. Yeah, we were we were ready to pull the trigger, and we Trump comes along on last Friday, 
and says, governors, open your churches or I will have you open your churches. Yeah. And yeah. the whole thing changed. So that really, that was like whiplash end of last week. He rattled cages and that changed our whole really strategy. And it really sort of came to us at that point um, where the governor is now giving us guidelines to reopen. But we were prepared to petition both our state and county and to present to them what we felt were reasonable guidelines to and purposes for us to and theologically and constitutional purposes for us to reopen. And then by doing that, this is an important thing, too, that, um, you know, many Christians are missing is that when we appeal to unjust government, we still follow the legal processes of appeal that we've been given. And the Constitution As sets that As opposed to become lawless ourselves. Right. It's not an excuse for, for right. just abject lawlessness and right. revolution. Um, you see that in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, if you watch his journey in the towards the end of Acts from, from chapters 22 to 25, right. where he appeals to his rights as a Roman citizen, uh, he then goes before a... a rising level of magistrates in appealing to Caesar. And at one point, he even gets left for two years in prison. Uh, so he Process goes through... was a bit slow. It was a bit slow. If we're concerned about slowness, that's horrendous. Um, now... Is that, are you saying we should be thankful that Gavin's moved so fast? We should. <laughs> we, we might want to tone... Some of us need to tone down our rhetoric in terms of... Uh, or as a, But it's an excellent point, isn't it? That yeah. Two years in jail. I mean, can we imagine that? Yeah. One or even, you know, two years at home. I mean, you know, there's a big difference. Yeah. And I think sometimes we're so soft and kind of pathetic, but we love to just raise our voices yeah. and we're not getting what we want. Well, we're, we're, as a church, and I speak broadly, just as American Christians, we're dealing with the fact that we're no longer in power and that the, the government's never been, you know, pro-Orthodox Christianity. Right. Of course. But we've always had an association and a, and a sort of assumption that the, the government's with us. Now, in many ways, I heard um, uh, one brother mention at one time that if you're if you're totally outraged by governmental injustice, then you're probably white, uh, because our African American brothers and sisters could tell us a lot about what it's to deal like with right. unjust laws right. and to try to be faithful to Christ in the midst of that. Which was a point I made on my sermon on Sunday night. Right. That, you know, there are there is a section of Christians in America who do know what it feels like to be treated unjustly, but they're not white people. Exactly. And we have to be honest about that. And yeah. just in case you don't know, you're listening to this podcast, Steve and I are white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. That's it. Uh, he's German, I'm Scottish. We can't get any more than that. And But we have to be honest right. about that reality, Steve. Yeah. I think we have this, you know, a blind spot when we talk about the church in America. Is never, no, there has been a substantial section in the church in America suffered uh, some horrendously wicked yeah. injustices. Yeah. And they understand it better than we do. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I'm just reading, as I was mentioning, about Martin Luther King and what they went through. And it was stunning to me just to re re go through back through that and realize, no, there is a whole section of people who had to walk through this justice, injustice, civil disobedience issue before we ever, you know, even thought about it. Yeah. You know, and, and even where we're at now. I mean, let's be honest, where we're at now, I don't think we can justly say that the church has been singled out in a persecuting manner. I do believe we can say there's been an, a, 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 a neglect, there's yeah. been a, a disregard. We might even go further and say, you know, that the, the governor uh, could even, you know, have kept us on the third phase. But I think when the president stepped up, there's other political reasons why things are happening. We just happen to be in the mix. Right. It's not that he's sitting there what thinking about the church. I think we would be unjust 
in accusing him of that, it would not be a righteous thing to do. Yeah, yeah. You know? And so things are moving along, and we're, at, at no point were we sort of taking the battle, and I think this is an important point to, to talk about, our our fight with the government is not about how it has processed the COVID-19 reasonably or not. It has been narrowly about our, uh, as pastors, getting our congregation to be able to assemble again. Right. And we are not a, a political action committee and representatives of that. what we privately may think. Exactly. So what do you think about, I think that has been a missing awareness, at least in conversation with pastors, about our role right. in our office. Right when we're in the midst of things that even as men we we have i mean i'm not i'm not i have political awareness and i have opinions but what what's the difference do you think about being in our office as pastors and how we have to acquit ourselves there i that's that's key i think that i know for me you know having pastor in northern ireland where there was there were similar issues there with the catholic protestant you know irish british unionist nationalist issues you had to as a pastor irrespective of what you thought per- personally you had to be primarily and foremost an ambassador of Christ. So it really doesn't matter what I think politically, right? I have to do what Christ my king calls me to, right? I mean, I do have my opinions. You know me, Steve. I've got plenty of opinions. But i got to lead the church according to the mind of Christ. Mm-hmm. And that challenges all of us, right? And we're going to talk about this even tonight in our, our Q&A. You know, the essence of the Christian life is to learn to die to yourself, and to live for God and love others. And I think this issue has unmasked a lot of carnality where our loyalties really have been subtly, and maybe not so subtly, political mm-hmm. rather than spiritual. Mm-hmm. And I think that we need to we need to be honest about that. We need to see that. I think God is at work. I think God is doing something. It's very exciting, actually, on one level. Yep. But that doesn't mean it's not painful. Because when you learn to die to self and you see yourself and your carnality, it's never pleasant. Uh, and you realize your prejudices, you realize you're maybe issue-oriented, you really are, you realize that you're more of a moralist than a Christian. Uh, there's a whole host of possibilities there that we need to unpack. Our job is to challenge all of our people to follow Jesus Christ right. and to live for Jesus Christ and to have the mind of Christ in the crisis. Um, and that has probably been the biggest challenge for us as pastors in our ministry because when things are going well and everybody seems to be you know, you know, just doing what seems to be right, it's harder to discern when something like this presses us all. When am I going to love my brother who sees it differently than I do? Am I going to love my governor who I don't like what he's doing to me? You know, well, what about Jesus? Hmm. You know, and I, I, you know, I was in First Peter again on Sunday night, First Peter 2, and it struck me again. You know, when he was reviled, he did not revile. You know, when he, when he suffered, he was willing to endure it. He entrusted himself to the one who does all, you know, justice. Just, just, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm like, Christ has shown us the way. Am I willing to die to my own political uh, opinions? They may be right and they may be wrong, right? That's irrelevant. If it means I'm not loving my brother, I'm not maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, I'm not willing to go the second mile with my brother or my sister who may legitimately have a different perspective. Mm. I think what we forget that a lot of public policy is essentially opinions of men, and good men can differ on public policy. And I think as Christians, there are some things are clear. Thou shalt not kill. Abortion is wrong, right? We can see that. But even the way we go about that at times is a bit like, you know, a, a bull in a china shop. And we wonder why we haven't maybe made the progress that we could have made. And I think it comes down to us as pastors getting our own hearts sorted out 
getting our own heads sorted out and realising we are not leading the church for any political direction whatsoever except the eternal kingdom of the king of kings. Right. And that is our responsibility, Steve. And we know how much it has been exhausting for us yeah. just trying to work through that. And by God's grace, you and I have pretty much been on the same page all the way as with iron sharpened iron. It's been a wonderful experience, but it's been tiring. It's exhausting. You and know? it is really trying to maintain the spirituality of the church in the midst of that. That's a, right. that's a doctrine and a conviction, I think, that is continually need to be re-raised and reconsidered in every generation. It has can have some of a, a, a tainted history as it goes back into the pre-Civil War era, but it rightly understood the spirituality of the church means not that we don't speak to the moral issues of our day and not that we're sort of so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, but that we recognize that corporately as a congregation, we are a body politic of another age. We are, uh, as Jonathan Lehman says, we're embassies of the the coming age. And so our politics and our concern is that eternal city. And we recognize that in this world, in this age, we are the only organization on the face of the earth charged with preaching the gospel and ministering the word of Christ and gathering the saints in worship. The only one. If we don't do that, no one does. And so protecting and preserving that, even in the midst of great social breakdown, even in the midst of great um, uh, sorrow and tragedy, we have to stay the course there, and especially in those times. And really helping Christians then understand the distinction between their participation in the church as the church versus their responsibilities and opportunities as Christian citizens. And I've told many of our church members, look, if you have problems with this, vote, appeal, recall, uh, join organizations that are peaceably going to um, uh, lobby the government. There's a whole host of things that we can do. Start your own organization right. that's going to deal with this. But the church cannot be encumbered with the m- mission of any other man or any other purpose than the Lord Jesus and his gospel and making disciples of all the nations. That is our calling, and we have to be steadfast in that. And especially as pastors then, yeah. it is a real fight in our hearts that our political agendas don't then drive right. the agenda of the church. Yeah, and just on that note, maybe that's something we could come back to in a future edition, which would be good. I mean, you know, I grew up pastoring in Northern Ireland where, you know, Ian Paisley and others did that very thing. They mixed the politics and the the, the religious elements. And I think that it has, it'll be interesting as books are written, and they will be written, to co- the commentary on that, to, to, to be a Christian in politics requires immense maturity of character. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things we see in the US sometimes is that there's a lot of immaturity in character and then it just becomes politicised. Uh, and I think that we should desire as pastors to equip people to be in that context, but that takes a lot of work and a lot of skill and a lot of care. And to survive there with integrity and to have influence in a good way, not ever getting all you want because nobody ever does politically, you re- it requires great spiritual maturity. And maybe sometimes that's why people either mess it up when they try or just don't try because it's hard. We should definitely, I think, after this is all over, have a bit of a post-mortem on that and say, well, maybe some people should get equipped better yeah. to be part of that in the community to serve. Uh, you won't get all you want, but you we are called to be salt and right. to be light. But to your point, the church's role, the mission the church is on is the discipline of the nations. And we cannot 
come down off the walls to do that other right. work. Um, but we must equip our people to go out and be what they can be in the community. I think that's an issue for another day. We can certainly open that up. But I think it's key to your point of making the distinction of what is the yeah. church and what are we about and how do we relate as a body politic to the wider civil magistrate context. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's a good opportunity for us to stop there, I think, Steve. I think we've we've covered some of that. There's obviously more to cover. Uh, a couple of books that we were going to mention today, Jonathan Lehman's book, How the Nations Rage, very interesting text, a, a very good text. I would encourage you. Our friend Jonathan has written that. I found a couple of chapters in this, The Theology of the Westminster Standards by FESCO, to be quite helpful on the law and the Christian life and the role of the civil magistrate, some good historical theology in there that I think would help, especially if there's anybody studying the 1689 Confession, yeah. give you the background of the Westminster thinking uh, on the civil magistrate, which I think a lot of us need to do a bit more of a deeper dive. Oh, without question. And spending time in Chapter 24 of our Confession yeah. on the civil magistrate and the, the uh, um, related chapters in the Westminster Confession. Of course, understanding the history of the Westminster is a little different because the American Presbyterians, after a little conflict with the British uh, a few hundred year, a couple hundred years ago, uh, uh, edited that. But looking into, especially, and I've encouraged a couple uh, brothers, go into the commentaries and the reflections on our confessional standards and look at how brothers have reasoned through these things in the past. Again, it doesn't solve every question we have, but it does give us some uh, footholds to grab onto and to, as we're trying to climb over this issue and think through what we're to do wisely before God. Yeah, amen. Well, thanks for listening, folks. Hopefully thanks, we'll be back for another edition of Particularly Baptist in the not-too-distant future. <laughs>